welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the Solemnity of the Assumption, August 15th, 2021. Provided with two sets of first readings, the church beckons us to look both backward and forward to understand our gospel and the Feast of the Assumption at hand. Diving into Luke as well as our Old Testament first reading, we see the evangelist draw clear parallels between David's reception of the Ark of the Covenant at Jerusalem and Elizabeth's reception of the new Ark just outside Jerusalem. Looking forward to our reading from Revelation, we realize that just as Mary went up to Jerusalem at the visitation, God brings her up to the new Jerusalem once and for all at her glorious Assumption. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. We've been taking a little bit of a break, and I'm not done taking a break, but I promised you that I would come back for August 15th because we uh, get an interruption between um, our reading of John 6 and uh, the uh, Feast of the uh, Solemnity of the Assumption of Mary. So we get um, new readings here and um, big surprise, they're actually from Luke. Not really a big surprise, um, being a little bit facetious there, right? Um, but we find our readings from uh, Luke. So we will dive right into it, uh, exploring our readings together. Today, we are looking at the gospel from Luke chapter one, verses 39 through 56. We are gonna look quite a bit at our first readings and I emphasize the um, plural nature there, not because um, we're going to look at the first and second reading, but we actually have multiple first readings for the Solemnity of the Assumption. So there's a first reading for the Vigil Mass, and then there's a first reading for the Mass during the day. And those two um, first readings really give us a key to understanding our gospel and understanding what the church wants is wants us to understand from this feast. But we'll read as usual the gospel together, Luke chapter one, verses 39 through 56. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. Let's look at a handful of things before we jump into the Old Testament readings, our first readings. I shouldn't say the Old Testament readings because of our our, our, our first reading for the vigil is an Old Testament reading. Our first reading for Master in the Day is a New Testament reading from Revelation. So 
um, my faux pas there in calling them Old Testament readings. But let's let's look at a couple of details from our gospel here before we read the gospel again in light of our first readings. So Mary sets out with haste to a Judean town in the hill country. It's actually literally reads to a town of Judah, which is um, a little bit interesting because as the RSV renders the translation here, it was more fitting to call it a Judean town. Um, But scholars see uh, some interesting parallels here uh, with the Old Testament when we see Luke specifically calling uh, where Mary goes, a town of Judah. So a reference to the tribe, the area where that tribe dwelt. And we'll get into why those connections are significant here in a moment when we look at our first readings. Um, but she goes to the hill country. Okay, so where, let's, I, I like talking about the geography of Palestine and the Holy Land. What are we talking about here? Well, Mary is located up in the north in Galilee in Nazareth, right? Judea, Judah is down in the south. Um, So generally we know that Mary is going from north to south. Where is the hill country? Well, the hill country is just outside of Jerusalem. It's just to the west of Jerusalem. So if you're in Jerusalem and you travel to the east, you'll quickly enter the desert. And if you go um, continue going east, you'll you'll come to um, like roughly um, the area of Jericho and the Dead Sea and the, the Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, et cetera, et cetera. If you leave Jerusalem and head west, you get into a more lush land, this land called the hill country. And if you continue going, you come, you come to the Mediterranean Sea, okay? And the hill country is quite literally a hill country. Um, so if you, uh, if you have the privilege of going on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and maybe some of you have, uh, have uh, who are listening and remember this, if you uh, recall your um, trip to uh, the the church of of um, the visitation, I blanked there for a moment. The church of the visitation. You will recall um, some pretty steep drop offs and some hairpin turns traveling through the hill country of Judea. It is very literally the hill country. It's very hilly, very beautiful. Um, very lush, very green, lots of trees, lots of nature, lots of birds singing. Um, and it's a, it's a very, very beautiful place. In addition, if you recall um, or ever have the chance to go to the Holy Land, when you go to visit the Church of the Visitation, the bus will drop you off um, uh, at a lower part of, of, of the church. Like you can't, the bus can't actually, what I'm trying to get at, the bus can't actually drive up to the church of the visitation because it's too hilly. It's too steep. So you get dropped off below and then you have to walk. It's quite a, it's quite a hike, um, up to the church of the visitation. So it's, it's definitely the hill country, very beautiful, very lush upscale. Okay. Um, I'm, it looked to me upscale when I went a few years ago, in first century Palestine, certainly was upscale. Um, this is not entirely surprising because Zachariah is a priest. Um, and then um, because he's a priest, it is uh, fitting in many ways that he dwells in the hill country. So the hill country of Judea is, like I mentioned, outside of Jerusalem. It's about five miles from the temple, okay? So it's a great commuting distance. And keep in mind that the priests did not go um, uh 
all year round every day to the temple. They had their cycle of serving in the temple. So it's not as if Zachariah had to go every day, 365 days a year, this five mile commute. Because actually in the first century, that would have been, you know, that would have been a, a fairly big commute to be doing every day. Um, nevertheless, it was a very uh, centralized location for a priest of the house of Levi to be living near Jerusalem so that when his turn came to serve in the temple, he was there and he was available. All right. So the, the, the hill country of Judea is about five miles from the temple. Contrast that with um, the distance between the hill country of Judea and Nazareth. And there we get a much larger, larger distance, a distance of about 90 miles. All right. And uh, that, that would have, come out to a trip of probably a couple of days for our lady to make that trip. So uh, she really wanted to go see Elizabeth. And this was a great act of uh, charity and love, right? To bring the savior to her cousin. And um, Elizabeth seems to to recognize this, right? Okay, so um, what else can we note? I will give you one more um, interesting Old Testament parallel uh, before we start looking at our first readings, um, one of the first details that we're greeted with when we read our gospel here is this fascinating image of a child leaping in the womb. And it's Elizabeth's child leaping in her womb at Mary's greeting. And um, the the Greek verb here used for leap is the same Greek verb in the Septuagint translation of uh, Genesis uh, I believe it's chapter uh, 25, verse uh, 33. It's either verse 23 or verse 33, um, where we have um, this same Greek verb describing Esau and Jacob leaping or jostling in the womb of Rebekah. Now, obviously Jesus and John the Baptist are not in the womb of Elizabeth, right? But nevertheless, they are both present in the womb, Jesus in Our Lady's womb, John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb. And scholars have pointed out this um, interesting connection between these two scenes in part because in Genesis 25, we get this um, interesting description that the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. And we're talking about Esau and Jacob here, right? And is this not the case with John the Baptist and Jesus, that John the Baptist, who is older, not by much, but nevertheless is older, will indeed serve the younger, the younger who is greater, okay? Um, and so we see this, this parallel between um, Esau and Jacob, it, it, to an extent, I don't wanna take it too far because Esau obviously was not nearly as righteous as John, as John the Baptist, but we see this, um, uh, this limited parallel, but a parallel nonetheless between Esau and Jacob in their mother's womb, and uh, John the Baptist and Jesus in their mother's womb, uh, mother's wombs as well. Okay, let's jump to our first readings. And our first reading for mass during the day is from uh, Revelation. And uh, if I gave you um, three guesses to guess what section of Revelation from, and you are mildly familiar with the scriptures, you would probably guess Revelation 12. And if you guessed Revelation 12, you would be correct. Um, but we should note that it's not just Revelation 12 as such that we get here in our readings, but actually what we get is Revelation 11:19 and following. Okay, so we get the, 
the verse just prior to Revelation 12. And this is important because it's kind of the key to understanding Revelation 12. Now, keep in mind that chapter and verse were added later. And so there is in in very many ways a clear connection between that last verse of Revelation 11 and Revelation 12. Revelation 11, 19 is kind of the introduction of Revelation 12. And it provides the hermeneutical key, the key to understanding not only Revelation 12, but also our gospel here and the whole um, feast of the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Okay, so I'm just gonna read for you our reading um, for mass during the day, our first reading for mass during the day from Revelation eleven nineteen and following. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. A great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs in the agony in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God, to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God so that there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. And the reading actually goes on um, for a few more, uh, a few more verses, but I'm going to stop there because we don't have, um, we don't have a ton of time in part. An entire episode could be uh, dedicated to each of the readings we're going to explore today separately, but we're going to explore them in their threesome. Why is Revelation and uh, Revelation 12 and then Revelation 11, 19, a hermeneutical key not to understanding this whole, not just to understand this whole section of Revelation, but to understanding our feast day as well as our gospel reading from Luke. The key is in this phrase, Ark of the Covenant. See, at Revelation 12, we have this, this beautiful imagery a great sign appeared in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars, right? Well, if you're familiar with Our Lady's uh, private revelation, this is how she chose to reveal herself on Juan Diego's Tilma um, in, in Mexico under the title of Our Lady of Guadalupe, okay? She's clothed with the sun. She has the moon under her feet and on her head are a crown of 12 stars, So this is an image of Our Lady, but we're told at Revelation 11, 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple, okay? So this means that what John saw when the heavens were opened for him so that he could look into heaven and he gazed on the Ark of the Covenant, he saw not the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant, but he saw Our Lady, okay? So the hermeneutical key to understanding our gospel as well as our feast is this idea of Mary as the Ark of the Covenant. 
Now, um, one uh, one detail that's uh, fascinating here, Revelation 12, um, we get this, this beautiful image, right? The moon under her feet clothed with the sun, a crown of 12 stars. It reminds us of Genesis, specifically Genesis uh, chapter 37, verse 9. This is the section in which Joseph, Old Testament Joseph, is relaying a dream that he had to his brothers. And if you recall, these dreams were not very popular with his brothers. In fact, it was in large part the telling of these dreams that caused his brothers to, to sell him into slavery because they were so frustrated with what they what they understood to be his haughtiness, his, his hubris and his pride. But nevertheless, let's read Genesis uh, chapter 37, verse nine, that he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream and behold, the sun, the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. The sun, the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. We get the same kind of idea here when we have this woman, our lady, who has um, as her raiment, the sun, the moon and the stars, right? And so there's this sense of um, exaltedness. And this is exactly what Joseph feels is being revealed to him as well. And we understand that the dream does indeed come true, regardless of whether he is sold into slavery. In fact, because he's sold into slavery, right? He is um, exalted over his brothers. But there's a fascinating key here for us to understand, to get our lady right, to understand her. Why was Joseph exalted over his brothers? He was exalted over his brothers for the sake of his brothers, for the sake of his family, in order to save them when the famine should come along. And is this not true of Our Lady? She is indeed exalted, but she is exalted for her brothers, her brothers and sisters, you and I, so that she might save us. She might be that co-redemptrix with Jesus because of that yes that allowed for the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of our Lord, which causes our salvation, right? So indeed, Mary is exalted over us. We cannot deny this, but she's exalted for our sakes. And this is a beautiful, beautiful idea and helps us to understand what a gift Our Lady is to each of us personally, all right? Because we are each saved personally, which means that Our Lady is a gift to each of us personally. And her yes contributes to our salvation in a personal individual way, right? This is why we call her mother because um, she brings about spiritual life in us. And so she is a spiritual mother to us. And in some ways, what life is more real, right? Um, Physical life or spiritual life? It has to be argued that if one life is one kind of life, one kind of living is more real than another. Indeed, spiritual life is more real than physical life. And so Mary, as our spiritual mother, is in a very real way a mother to us. She who brings forth spiritual life in us by her own yes at, uh, at the Annunciation, right? Beautiful, beautiful ideas. Let's turn uh, to our uh, first reading for the vigil of the Assumption. 
And for that, we turn to 1 Chronicles 15, verses 3 through 4, 15 through 16, and then chapter 16, 1 through 2. I'm actually not going to read this section. Actually, let's go ahead and read it. I'll read it in full. But what I'm actually going to do is turn to a parallel account that is not um, in Chronicles, or is, uh, I guess I should say, in addition to Chronicles, it's a parallel account of the story, which is at 2 Samuel. So the first and second book of Chronicles um, kind of retell many of the things that happen in the books of Samuel and the books of Kings, okay? So I'll read Chronicles so that we get the general gist of the idea, but then we're actually going to turn to 2 Samuel 6, which is the parallel account here in this first reading for us for the vigil. And we're going to see some amazing parallels between 2 Samuel 6 and our uh, our gospel here for uh, our feast day from Luke. 1 Chronicles 15 and following. David assembled all Israel and Jerusalem to bring the ark of the Lord to the place where he had prepared for it. David also called together the sons of Aaron and the Levites. The Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders with poles, as Moses had ordained according to the word of the Lord. David commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their kinsmen as chanters, to play on musical instruments, harps, lyres, and cymbals, to make a loud sound of rejoicing. They brought in the ark of God and set it within the tent, which David had pitched for it. Then they offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings to God. When David had finished offering up the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Okay. Uh, that was First Chronicles 15, uh, 3 through 4, 15 through 16, and chapter 16, 1 through 2. Our first reading for the vigil mass of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And again, you saw that hermeneutical key here in our readings, Ark of the Covenant. So to dive into these readings, we're actually going to turn to this parallel account that I've been referencing at 2 Samuel 6. And I'm just gonna comb through certain details of 2 Samuel 6 that provide these incredible parallels with our gospel at, uh, at Luke that we have been reading through. So um, when Mary comes to, when Our Lady comes to Elizabeth, Elizabeth um, makes this this greeting to her and uh, she says, why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord come to me? Why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord come to me? Well, at 2 Samuel 6, as we read um, this, the parallel account in 1 Chronicles, we have the story of the Ark of the Covenant coming up to Jerusalem, David receiving the Ark of the Covenant, okay? And if we look at the parallel account in 2 Samuel 6, we see that when David receives the Ark, he makes a declaration. What does he say? At 2 Samuel 6, 9, he says, quote, how can the Ark of the Lord come to me? End quote. How can the Ark of the Lord come to me? So just as when Elizabeth is greeted by Mary. She says, how can this be that the mother of the Lord comes to me? David says much the same thing. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? Um, We can um, jump back to 2 Samuel 6, verse 2, where we read that David arose and went in order to find the ark, to receive the ark. 
And he arose and went to a town of Judah. The same exact phraseology in the Greek also occurs right at the beginning of our our gospel here um, at Luke 1, where Mary arose and went to a town of Judah. Remember I said that the actual um, literal translation is not to a Judean town, but to a town of Judah, okay? So David and Mary are going to make much the same journey here. Um, We're told that when Mary, uh, when Elizabeth hears the greeting of Our Lady, hears Mary's greeting, that the child in her womb leaps and leaps for joy, right? If we jump to 2 Samuel 6, verse 16, we find David leaping before the Lord. It says, uh, quote, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And before, uh, just before verse 16, at verse 12, we're told that David went and brought up the ark of God to the city of David with rejoicing, okay? So David himself with joy leaps before the ark of the covenant. And what does John the Baptist do? when he himself, even in the womb, as a little, little tiny child, is greeted by um, the Ark of the Covenant, what does he do? He leaps with joy, just like David did, okay? We're told that at 2 Samuel 6, verse 15, the house of Israel brought up the Ark of the Lord with shouting, okay? The Ark of the Lord was brought up with shouting, this sense of uh, joyful crying out, Um, When Mary comes to Elizabeth, we're told that she exclaims with a loud cry. The literal translation of that from the Greek is with a great shout, okay? So just as the people of Israel greet the Ark of the Covenant with joyful shouting, Elizabeth greets the new Ark of the Covenant with joyful shouting as well. And that word just before loud cry in our RSV translation, the word exclaimed, um, in Greek, it's anophaneo. It means cried out. This is the, it's a, it's an odd Greek term. It's the only time here in our gospel in Luke that it occurs in the entire New Testament. It's also a rare Greek verb or Greek word in the uh, Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. But it does indeed occur in our first reading from First Chronicles at verse 28 of chapter 15, okay, in that pericope. And in fact, it only occurs, I said it's not a very common Greek term in the Septuagint Old Testament. It only occurs five times in total. And when it does, it always describes liturgical singing and music before the Ark of the Covenant, okay? And so this is a, a loaded Because it's such a rare word, it's a loaded word, and it's loaded with all these beautiful overtones of uh, liturgy, of music, and of the Ark of the Covenant, okay? And so just as the people um, uh, surrounded the Ark of the Covenant with these these cries, these anaphaneo, uh, in the Old Testament, so Elizabeth does much the same. And so the encounter even takes on Um, kind of a liturgical connotation, if you will. Beautiful, beautiful, um, and fascinating uh, parallels going on here. Lastly, the last one that I'll draw out for you is if we jump to the end of our gospel here at Luke chapter one, 
after the Magnificat, Our Lady's um, Song of Praise, at verse 56, we read that Mary remained with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned to her home, okay? Do we have any other such details in uh, the Old Testament um, text that we're looking at? Indeed, we do. We're told at 2 Samuel 6 that David brings the Ark of the Covenant up to the city of David, and then it remains in the tent just outside the city of David for three months, okay? So these fascinating parallels between the Ark of the Covenant coming up to um, um, the area of Jerusalem, right? And then in the New Testament, the new Ark of the Covenant coming into the, uh, the quote-unquote area of Jerusalem as well. Now, how does this connect to the Old Testament? Well, if you're in a, an astute reader of, uh, of the scriptures and you're good at making connections, um, you will, you will uh, see how this relates to the assumption. So I just noted that in our parallel between our gospel from Luke chapter one and 2 Samuel 6, what do we glean? We glean that um, just as the Ark of the Covenant was brought up to Jerusalem, So in the New Testament, the new Ark of the Covenant is brought up into Jerusalem as well in the encounter with Elizabeth at the visitation. Well, um, it's so often in scripture that there's an initial fulfillment of things and then there's a final fulfillment of things. And we have this going on um, in much the same way in our feast today, because what is the feast of the Assumption? Assumption? What does it celebrate? It celebrates none other than the Ark of the Covenant being taken up once and for all into the new Jerusalem, which is heaven itself. Okay. So we can turn to, uh, we can turn to um, some of the church fathers. St. John Damascene has this to say, he says, quote, the company of apostles lift you up on their shoulders, the true ark of the Lord God, as once the priests lifted up the typological ark that pointed the way to you, Your immaculate, completely spotless body was not left on earth, but you have been transported to the royal dwelling place of heaven, end quote, okay? So what we are celebrating is the Ark of the Covenant triumphantly being brought into heaven. And um, this is one of those feasts in which um, we certainly celebrate, but there's a sense in which um, the, the company that is most heartily celebrating this feast is the company of apostles and saints um, and holy men and women in heaven, right? Because it's they who who welcomed the Ark of the Covenant into the new Jerusalem. I want to point out a really fascinating detail that John Damascene brings up in this quote that we just read. He says, as once the priest lifted up the typological Ark that pointed the way to you, What is he getting at here? He's actually saying that the Ark of the Covenant, the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant was a type of Mary. It foreshadowed Mary. This is a fascinating idea and something for us to hold on to because what the temptation can be as we make connections uh, with Mary and the Ark of the Covenant is to kind of look at Our Lady and say, see, this is how she is like the Ark of the Covenant. But um, there's a subtle way in which we can still be holding up the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant as like the 
real Ark of the Covenant, as you will, uh, if you will. And Mary is just like the the one who is like the Ark of the Covenant. But St. John Damascene is saying it's exactly the opposite. He's saying that the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant was a mere shadow, a type, a foreshadowing of the true Ark of the Covenant. So when we talk about the Ark of the Covenant, even though naturally what will come to mind will probably be the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant, what we really should think of as the Ark of the Covenant, because she is the true Ark of the Covenant, is Mary, is Our Lady herself, because the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant is merely a type. But she who held Jesus in her very womb, in her very body, is truly the one and only once for all Ark of the Covenant. And this is what we celebrate um, in our feast. I um, I could, I said I could spend time on each of our, our gospels separately. And that's uh, very true. I could also spend um, an entire podcast episode talking about the beauty of the, the, uh, the Magnificat. Um, but I, I'm not going to do that. However, I will reference a beautiful quote from Pope Benedict XVI. He says that the Magnificat of Mary shows that Our Lady was a woman steeped in the word of God. And why does he say that? He says that because scholars looking at the text of the Magnificat see tons of parallels between it and many Old Testament texts. I'll give you a bit of a teaser to this so that you don't feel like I'm totally skimping out on discussing the Magnificat. But many scholars believe that the Magnificat most clearly parallels Hannah's song in the Old Testament. So we can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and we read this and notice how there's similarities and parallels between Hannah's song and the Magnificat. 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 1 and following. Hannah also prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Uh, she goes on, Hannah goes on and on, but already at the, that little taste, you can see how um, Mary, uh, Our Lady, is steeped in scripture. I'll read this quote from Pope Benedict uh, XVI, um, this direct quote for you. It's very beautiful. He says, quote, the Magnificat is entirely woven from threads of holy scripture, threads drawn from the word of God. Here we see how completely at home Mary is with the word of God. With ease, she moves in and out of it. She speaks and thinks with the word of God. The word of God becomes her word and her word issues from the word of God. 
Here we see how her thoughts are attuned to the thoughts of God, how her will is one with the will of God. Since Mary is completely imbued with the word of God, she is able to become the mother of the word incarnate. This is such a huge compliment to Our Lady. Um, and, and it sounds like a funny thing to say that Pope Benedict XVI is paying her a compliment, but he is himself a great scripture scholar. And uh, he's saying that Mary, I love when he says she moves with ease in and out of scripture. With ease, she moves in and out of the word of God. And he makes this implication that it's because she was so at home with the word that she was able to be a home for the word. Because Mary was so at home with the word, she was able to be a home for the word. And so we have to ask ourselves as well, um, and hopefully my podcast helps a little bit with that, with this, do we find a home in the word? And does the word find a home with us? Do we enjoy reading scripture? Do we seek it out and draw strength from it? Are we able to move in and out of it with ease? And that doesn't mean that you can um, make all these um, tons of connections and, uh, and, and quote all this scripture by heart. But to move in and out of, of the word of God with ease means to be attuned to the thoughts of God, as Pope Benedict XVI says. And we can learn the heart of, heart of God from scripture, from the reading of the gospels, especially where God has revealed himself to us perfectly in his son. And so this is the great compliment uh, uh, to be paid to Our Lady. It's not as if her holiness and her exaltedness comes merely from the fact that she is the mother of God, but rather she was able to be the mother of God because she was so sensitive and so open all throughout her life to, uh, to the word of God and to the Holy Spirit. I would be remiss to offer you uh, an episode on the on the assumption of Mary, without um, touching a little bit on um, on a theological question that's usually raised on this feast day, which is, um, did Mary actually die, or did she just fall asleep? So I'm going to turn away from strict uh, scripture here, like scriptural theology and and the content that makes up a typical episode of our podcast. And I'm going to uh, turn more to theology and dogmatic theology. And to answer this question, I'm going to turn to um, a succinct teaching from Pope John Paul II that he gave at one of his general audiences. It's the uh, audience from June 25th, 1997. And it's titled Mary and the human drama of death. And, um, as usual for the Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, he um, is wonderful at um, speaking succinctly, but bringing clarity even from um, just a few words. And so I'm going to read almost directly from him the first two, it, I, I will read directly from him the first two paragraphs of this general audience. Um, Mary in the human drama of death. Pope John Paul II says this, quote, concerning the end of Mary's earthly life, the council uses the terms of the bull defining the dogma of the assumption and states, quote, the Immaculate Virgin, preserved free from all stain of original sin, was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory when her earthly life was over. With this formula, the dogmatic constitution Lumen Gentium, 
following my venerable predecessor, Pius XII, made no pronouncement on the question of Mary's death. Nevertheless, Pius XII did not intend to deny the fact of her death, but merely did not judge it opportune to affirm solemnly the death of the mother of God as a truth to be accepted by all believers. Pause there for a second. What's the translation here? Um, Pope John Paul II is quoting from Lumen Gentium, um, one of the Vatican II um, documents that, that itself quotes from the papal bull when the Pope defined the dogma of the assumption. Okay, so that was that quote from Lumen Gentium, which is actually a direct quote from the papal bull where the Holy Father um, speaking ex cathedra made an infallible statement on the dogma of the assumption. Now, what John Paul II is saying that when Pius Twelfth in um, approving Lumen Gentium made no pronouncement on the question of Mary's net death, he's saying that he did not want to invoke infallibility in order to make an infallible pronouncement on the topic. Okay, that's all he's saying. Let's continue with this direct quote from John Paul II. Holy Father says, some theologians have in fact maintained that the Blessed Virgin did not die and was immediately raised from earthly life to heavenly glory. However, this opinion was unknown until the 17th century, whereas a common tradition actually exists, which sees Mary's death as her entry into heavenly glory. Could Mary of Nazareth have experienced the drama of death in her own flesh? Reflecting on Mary's destiny and her relationship with her divine son, it seems legitimate to answer in the affirmative. Since Christ died, it would be difficult to maintain the contrary for his mother. That's the opinion of Pope John Paul II. Now, um, I, I, uh, I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm stuttering over my words. I am um, moved by his argument from tradition, okay, where the Holy Father says that this opinion that Mary did not die was not uh, known until the 17th century. Okay, the Holy Father is going to go on in the next few paragraphs to provide some quotes from the early church, from the fathers of the church, who seem to propose the opposite, okay? So John Paul II quotes St. Jacob of Serug, who died in the year 521. John Paul II said, that uh, St. Jacob of Sarug wrote that when the time came for Mary, quote, to walk on the way of all generations, end quote, the way that is of death, quote, the group of the 12 disciples gathered to bury the virginal body of the blessed one, end quote, okay? So St. Jacob of Sarug, who died in 521, said that the 12 apostles buried the virginal body of the blessed one, okay, of Our Lady, St. Modestus of Jerusalem, who died in 634, said that Christ, quote, raised Mary from the tomb, end quote, okay? So the implication that she died and was buried in order to be raised from the tomb. And then again, we already quoted from St. John Damascene early in our, earlier in our podcast, he died in 704. He says this, and I love the way he phrases it, quote, why is it that she who in giving birth surpassed all the limits of nature should now bend to its laws and her immaculate body be subjected to death? To be clothed in immortality. It is of course necessary that the mortal part be shed since even the master of nature did not refuse the experience of death, end quote. 
So St. John Damascene asked that question that we often ask in this discussion. If she, uh, in giving birth, surpassed the limits of nature, right? She gave birth as a virgin. She conceived as a virgin, gave birth as a virgin. Why should she be subjected to death? And John Damascene's answer is this, to be clothed with immortality because it is necessary for the mortal part to be shed. And since the master of nature did not refuse the experience of death, why should our lady have refused the experience of death as well? So it's a much older tradition that our lady indeed died after the example and following in the path of her son, but that she was um, quickly assumed, her body was quickly assumed into heaven and reunited with her soul. And as such, Mary herself serves as a pledge of the resurrection of the body, because at the end of time, the same will occur for each of us. Our bodies will be resurrected and they will be united with our souls in heaven so that once more we will be as we ought, as God intended us to be, body and soul, but with him forever in heaven. And so Mary is not only a pledge of the resurrection, but she is that new covenant, right? Uh, In which the old Ark of the Covenant was merely a type of foreshadowing of she who was perfect, sinless and carried the very body of God, the very presence of God in her flesh, in her womb. And it is for this reason that we are also able to call her mother of God. And indeed, if she is the mother of God and co-redemptrix, as we looked at earlier in our episode, she is indeed the mother of each and every one of us, a spiritual mother, But recall that spiritual life is no less than physical life. Indeed, it can be argued that ontologically, spiritual life is more real than physical life. And so the motherhood that Our Lady gives us is a very real motherhood. And on this feast of the solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, we entrust ourselves even more to her care, for she will protect us wrapping us up as she wrapped up in her flesh the son of god with her with her very self if it is required she will protect us because she loves us to the end sweet mother pray for us 